DLA Piper. This is the Beyond the Curve podcast. In this episode, John Galuli, Global Co-Chair of DLA Piper's Corporate Practice, speaks with General James Mattis and Ambassador Nicholas Burns about COVID-19 and the implications for global business and international cooperation. This conversation was hosted by DLA Piper in partnership with the Cohen Group. Good day, everyone. I'm John Galuli. It goes without saying that we are living in a time of profound challenge. The entire world is confronting the public health crisis of COVID-19. The world is also beginning to understand and confront the societal, economic, and political fallout of the pandemic and the measures taken to abate its spread. It's during these moments of crisis, moments when uncertainty and doubt pervade, that our institutions, whether governmental, economic, or civic, are needed most. It's also when we learn best the values and skills requisite to effective leadership and whether today's leaders possess those qualities and live up to their responsibilities. We are very fortunate to have with us today General James Mattis and Ambassador Nicholas Burns. While they come from different backgrounds, they've each served presidents from both parties, demonstrated exceptional leadership during times of global crisis and conflict, and spent their lives studying and teaching effective leadership, coalition building, and collaboration. General Mattis grew up in the state of Washington and joined the U.S. Marine Corps in 1969. During his 43 years in the Marines, he commanded combat tours at the platoon, battalion, regiment, brigade, division, force, and theater levels. General Mattis served as Executive Secretary of the Department of Defense during the tenures of Secretaries Perry and Cohen, and also as Senior Military Assistant to Deputy Secretary Vince DeLeon. He served three years as Commander of U.S. CENTCOM and two years as Secretary of Defense under President Trump. General Mattis is currently the Navy's Family Distinguished Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Ambassador Burns spent 27 years in the U.S. Foreign Service with postings throughout the world, including Africa, the Middle East, and Europe. He also served five years at the White House as a member of the National Security Council staff during the collapse of the Soviet Union. Ambassador Burns served as State Department spokesman for Secretaries of State Albright and Christopher as U.S. Ambassador to Greece, U.S. Ambassador to NATO, and as Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, the third-ranking position at State. Ambassador Burns is currently the William Barbara Goodman Family Professor of Diplomacy and International Relations at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. He is also Director of the Aspen Strategy Group and serves on the boards of numerous organizations. Gentlemen, thank you both for sharing your time with us. Uh, it's good to General be here, John. Thank you. Well, General Mattis, maybe we can start with you. There's the old saying that rough seas make good sailors, and the seas are certainly rough today. Some commentators have described this crisis as unprecedented and unlike anything the world has ever seen. Now, I know you're a student of history, and so while not exactly the same and not to diminish the severity of the current situation, but the world has faced crises many times in the past. Can you share with us your thoughts about the COVID-19 pandemic? What lessons you've learned in your life and in your study of other events, their leaders, and how they apply today? Certainly, John, and thank you again. It's a pleasure to be with you and your team here in these very tough times and to be alongside Ambassador Burns, one of our elite foreign service officers. And while I don't use the terms like unprecedented or unlike anything the world has ever seen, all crises bring challenges. So there are similarities there. This pandemic has struck severely in scale and ferocity. It's been swift, and this crisis, like all of the crises in history, is serving as an auditor 
of some of those institutions you just mentioned. It's scraping the veneer off all of them, and it's revealing, leaving the leadership competence of government, of healthcare organizations, of corporations, of school districts, right down to the local level, revealed. It's going to be applying a very crude and very harsh grading system on leaders. That's what crises always do. In any crisis, when you look back in history, a leader's first responsibility is to define reality. If you look at this in terms of leaders are there to act, they define reality and they couple that to swiftly detailing how we're going to deal with that reality. And by deal with it, I mean how are they going to steady the ship and do the immediate damage control to limit the damage. Really, more importantly, leaders have got to get out in front to regain the initiative, whether it's because of an enemy attack on Pearl Harbor or on New York City or a pandemic spreading out of control across the world. One point that history teaches us right away is that speed of decision, not being hasty, but the speed of decision and the speed of action are critical with trigger points. Because the longer any government or organization remains in the reactive mode or the stunned mode, the more it's ceding ground in the fight to recover. That time, once it's lost, cannot be regained. You must act early on incomplete information. What you do then, where we were at by, say, the 1st of March, the ground lost, we simply had to play the ball where it lay. Defining the situation calls for acknowledging reality is one thing that history teaches us. Just a couple of snapshots, unemployment exceeding perhaps the Great Depression, which took three years for us to get to those depths, this time less than three months. Then take a look at the GDP hit that we will suffer here. What do leaders think? Are they willing to say it's going to take three to six quarters to get the GDP back to what it was in February of 2020? It's key to look at these kinds of horizons right away to get a grasp for how you're going to navigate through it. In our lifetime, in its impact on the economy and society, this is going to be obviously worse than 9-11. The recovery period will be more elongated, I believe, than the global financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. We have to take into account a political system that's more fragile and less effective at home and abroad. After 9-11, the United Nations was united. We had over 50 nations with their troops in the field alongside us within nine months. After the global financial crisis struck, we didn't spend time blaming the U.S. for its mortgage crisis being the catalyst. Instead, the G7, the G20 collaborated. In 2014, when ISIS upended the Middle East, 70 nations united. And this time, we have to look at defining the reality with the biggest challenge probably since World War II facing the globe. The antagonisms at home and abroad are stronger than the spirit of collaboration, at least so far. Looking at this in a historic context, it appears the federal government's actions were delayed and lost critical time. They've been confused and had some lack of clarity. The governors have performed well in some cases. Others have been late. But we have to recognize, too, the country cannot be effective in fighting this epidemic without a national policy because we're not set up to do that. 
internationally, what we're seeing is nations falling back on national solutions. Europe has closed borders. The U.S. is not leading. And one thing during our lifetimes we have learned, when you're in a fight, you want to bring all your allies. In this case, I would also point out if the U.S. doesn't lead, not much happens. We're going to have to look at the international organizations that have been audited and found lacking in some cases. The World Health Organization has some explaining to do. There is some hope that the G7 finance ministers and others will start putting together an international collaboration. But one point I would make about leaders, I mentioned the harsh grade they're going to get. Leaders cannot fall back on saying they're doing their best, something like that. As Churchill put it, they're going to have to do what is necessary, defining the reality, reorganizing to deal with it, and accepting that government leadership right now is not acting at the speed of relevance, which means a lot of business people, a lot of governors and local people, school districts are going to have to deal with it at the speed of relevance. In this case, I think confidence and empathy with a scarred and scared workforce population is going to be critical. It's all for the purpose of regaining the initiative. We're just going to have to very quickly basically improvise, but then adapt and replace our assumptions that we have right now because we don't know enough with information. And at that point, leaders planning across multiple horizons, I think, will be ready to go. That's a quick snapshot of what I've learned from history and dealing with these myself. That's terrific, General. Thank you so much. Ambassador Burns, maybe building on the general's comments, one of your main areas of focus at Harvard's Kennedy School is the importance and responsibilities of governments and their leaders working together to solve global challenges. And COVID-19 certainly fits that bill. Can you talk about the importance of governments working together and the initiatives we've seen thus far? And building on General Mattis's points, do you think world leaders are doing enough? And how does the U.S.'s role in those efforts compare to its historical role in challenges? John, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, as always, with my friend and colleague, General Jim Mattis. Together, we work at the Cohen Group, and we're very grateful to DLA Piper for the Cohen Group's strategic partnership with DLA. It's been a great partnership over many years. John, I'd answer your question in making two points. First point, we're four months into the crisis, and we can see the difference that good leadership makes. We can see the consequences of poor leadership. I would stress leadership the way that General Mattis has. With this in mind, we might ask ourselves which governments have performed most effectively around the world. In my view, the most impressive are a small group of mid-sized countries, nearly all democracies, by the way, most of them not major powers, who did the following things. They detected the threat of the pandemic earlier than others. They made rapid decisions to lock down. They tested their populations widely on an extensive scale, and they followed the data and the science. Some of these leadership countries are South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, New Zealand and Australia, Israel, Austria, Denmark, and Germany. And maybe Germany, because it's the largest of those countries, Maybe it's the best performer because it's physics-oriented, data-driven, chancellor made sure that they took very strong measures. Our daughter lives in Germany, so I'm getting firsthand reports from her to keep the population safe. Contrast that with four of the strongest powers in the world, China, 
the European Union, Japan, and the U.S., they've all had major problems. China, as we can all see, is embarking on a major propaganda campaign to describe itself as heroic in fighting the disease in Wuhan and then in helping others since then. We've got to remember that the Chinese authorities lied to the entire world about the health crisis in Wuhan for much of January, and that harmed all of us. We didn't see the truth until it was really too late. The Chinese are still not being at all transparent. They're blocking international efforts to ask what went wrong so that we can learn the lessons. It's another lesson that authoritarian dictatorships arrest citizens who ask questions like what went wrong, and they stonewall foreigners who ask the same question. European Union was surprising, at least to me. It was really a bystander during much of the pandemic. You remember in February and March, walls went up all over Europe for the first time since the end of the Cold War. Nations took the lead. The EU was not a major factor until recently. Japan is in trouble because Prime Minister Abe, who's been a very good prime minister in many ways, he was indecisive in making some of the early decisions, say, that Merkel made. For the U.S., it's painful for me to say this, but I have to say the truth as I see it. I think we're seeing the failure of the federal government, the failure of the federal government to lead decisively or consistently or effectively, and at times even to lead honestly. As General Mattis said, many of our governors have led brilliantly. Some did not. But I think that what we need in the United States, once the crisis has passed, I wouldn't do it now, we need to form a 9-11 type commission of leaders from both parties, from business, from government, from universities, people with unimpeachable integrity who will tell us what went wrong. So we're prepared for the next time because COVID-19, as you all know, is the fourth major pandemic in 17 years. If you think of SARS in 2003 and H1N1 2009 and Ebola in 2014 and now the coronavirus in 2020, pandemics are gonna be part of our future. We Americans, this is my fundamental takeaway from the last few months, we need to be much better prepared for the second wave or for the next pandemic. That's my first point, John. Leadership really matters. My second point would be to say the world needs to work together much more effectively in common cause on both the pandemic and the economic crisis. You'll remember September, October 2008, at the beginning of the Great Recession, President George W. Bush convened the G20. Then President Obama, when he came into office a few months later, continued that. We've got to do a variation of that, play on that theme. On the health front, what does that mean? As General Mattis said, WHO is the central health organization in the world, and there's really no alternative to it in the middle of the crisis. I certainly think that the WHO has failed in some ways. And so you need to ask tough questions and maybe it needs to be reformed in the future or even replaced. But to walk away in the middle of the crisis from the WHO and withdraw funds, that's like defunding the fire department in the middle of the fire. We live in a glass house in America. Our own Center for Disease Control, it failed on testing in January and February. And that hurt us, it set us back. We really haven't caught up since on testing. We're gonna have to ask tough questions of both the WHO and of the Center for Disease Control. On the economic front, I think take a page from Bush 43 
and President Obama from the Great Recession convene at the leader level, the G20 and the G7, and expect that the most powerful leaders in the world are going to elect to work together. We have not seen that to date. The two natural leaders, the countries with greatest power and capacity and influence are the U.S. and China. We might have thought before the crisis that they would have worked together. They would have put aside their differences to work together on a global threat that affects each of the 195 nation states and all the 7.7 billion people in the world, and that has not happened. They have been fighting each other, the U.S. and China, nonstop, a war of words, rather than collaborate. That has worsened an already very troubled U.S.-China relationship, which is one of the negative fallouts of this crisis. That's my second point, John. We need much better global collaboration and leadership to stem both of these crises, the pandemic and the economic crisis. I would just leave you with the words of Pope Francis. You might remember at the time of the worst of the crisis in Italy, when so many people were dying in Lombardy, he stood alone in St. Peter's Square in the rain. He gave a sermon, no one there except the cameras. And he said, we find ourselves all in the same boat on the pandemic, on the economic crisis, on climate change. We all need to pull on the same oar. That is good advice for Xi Jinping, Donald Trump, and the other global leaders because they haven't managed to fulfill that yet. Thank you, John. That's great. And thank you both for those remarks. Staying with the concept that you both brought up but the necessity of leadership and global coalitions and multilateral, multi-jurisdictional responses, so much of that and its effectiveness are built on trust. Yet, as you both know, even before COVID-19, we saw trust among world leaders and among nation states deteriorating, especially, as you point out, between the U.S. and China. And President Xi Jinping called on party officials to resist anything standing in the way of Chinese rise last fall. And President Trump has presided over one of the toughest China strategies in memory. As you point out, it's also fair to say that the rhetoric and propaganda of both sides during the crisis has deepened that distrust. What do you believe is required for adversaries? And this is a question for both of you. What do you believe is required for adversaries to build trust, work together, while still fiercely competing geopolitically, economically, and in the South Sea, even militarily in some cases? What is required of their leaders? Do you even think that can happen in the current environment, especially between the U.S. and China? Nick, why don't I start on that and then you come in. John, the three most important words I learned over 40 years of having fought many times for our country, those three words were allies, allies, and allies, because nations with allies thrive and those without them wither. We need leaders who can hold in equipoise conflicting interests, yet be able to act. I, just to give you one example from history, I doubt that FDR, one of our more progressive presidents, found much in common with Joseph Stalin. But to defeat fascism, he swallowed his misgivings, and it was 100% collaboration during World War II, even though it devolved into the Cold War afterwards. I think that what we have to look at is how do you build the trust? As I was taught by one of the greatest leaders I've ever worked for, she said that transparency and alignment are critical factors. If you fall back historically, Camus wrote in his book, The Plague, that the only way to fight a plague is with decency. 
being decent starts with our fellow democracies because there we have so many shared beliefs. NATO is an example. The other democracies from Australia, New Zealand, on up to Japan and the Republic of Korea. You start there and work with nations that have just and responsive governments because they're more likely to have their populations with them. Especially when you listen to who Ambassador Burns said or some of the nations that seem to have handled this well, Taiwan, Republic of Korea, Austria, Germany, Israel, the list goes on. These are democracies. So build on the common ground you have and build strength. And then that gives you a stronger outreach to others. For example, China that has proven to be at best problematic and at worst duplicious, stopping domestic flights out of Wuhan in January and not stopping the international flights because that would have alerted the world that something was wrong there. Of course, that allowed the virus to go out. Okay, we're going to have to play the ball where it lies. That was a bad thing. We'll deal with it. For right now, the outreach, including to China, is critical to dealing with this. I'm not optimistic in the current political situation at this point that the American administration and the Chinese Communist Party are in a position to act in their population's best interest. I think that honest and calm, reasoned thinking, if we can get back to that, and if we can suppress the nationalist tendencies that are negative, not all nationalist tendencies are negative, but there are some when you confront a borderless pandemic that you're going to have to put aside and start with consultation among the democracies, get that united. We've lost ground there as well, but it can be recovered, I think, and this can be an opportunity to do that. And that can set the stage, I think, for a more productive collaboration with China, because confronted with that many nations where their economic exports are critical, they would recognize it's in their best interest to work with us. I don't know if you have something else to say on that, Ambassador Nick. That's how I would come at it. General Mattis, I'm going to sing from the same hymnal that you just sang from. I think, John, the answer to your very good question, and it's really the central question right now globally, is leadership. Leadership that can see that there's a common threat and that there's a common cause that we can all engage in. What's the common threat? These economic numbers that we are seeing around the world, they're just crushing. The Labor Department numbers on Friday in the United States, 20.5 million Americans lost their jobs in April compared to 8.7 million Americans who lost their jobs in 2008 and 9. Unemployment, as Jim said in his opening remarks, 14.5%, the highest American unemployment since 1933. Only 51% of Americans actually have a job right now. That's the lowest percentage in our history. And the collapse we've just experienced economically, remember we were at 3.5% unemployment two months ago, it's the fastest in American history. That has got to unite us with some of these other big countries around the world. The IMF is predicting 3% drop in global GDP in 2020. That's a major drop. It's projecting a 55 to 6% drop in American GDP, 7.5% drop in the EU's GDP, and the EU's our leading trade partner. There's a common cause here around the world. If China, Japan, the United States, India, Europe, Brazil, 
Nigeria are all going to be in an economic crisis. We're all going to have to find a way to get out of it together. And I think that's the essence of leadership. And Jim's example of FDR seeing that he had to have an alliance with Stalin to defeat the larger threat, I think is a really good insight for how we should think about it now. And I very much agree with Jim on alliances. Jim is a former NATO commander. I'm a former U.S. ambassador to NATO, so we have that in our blood. It's imprinted in our DNA. I was ambassador to NATO on 9-11 when we were hit really hard, and everybody in this phone call remembers that day, in New York and in Washington, D.C. at the Pentagon. Our phone started ringing out at NATO headquarters at the American mission. We're a joint State Department, Defense Department mission, and it was our allies calling. They asked a simple question, how can we help? We invoked Article 5 of the NATO Treaty the next day. All those allies went into Afghanistan, as Jim knows very well. And most of them are still there with us today. We've got to use these alliances. They're expressly built for a time like this. But seeing that we have common interests, we also have a common humanity. Sometimes you've got to see that common humanity even through an ideological struggle, the type that we're having with China, and emphasize that more than the rivalry. That takes leadership on both sides. I'm not trying to blame President Trump for everything, because I think Xi Jinping maybe is the leader who's made the decisions that really got us into this mess at the beginning. It's both of them that really have to step up here. Thank you. Thank you both. You've both talked about, obviously, different alliances, different institutions in the world. And we find ourselves in an era right now where political and ideological polarity seem to do nothing but breed skepticism and distrust of the very institutions we've traditionally relied upon, whether institutions like the WHO, which is perhaps the most scrutinized institution today, but also more ephemeral institutions created by alliance like NATO. You've each dealt with situations in your lives where the persons you were seeking to serve have questioned the authenticity of your institution's purpose. And General Mattis said, I think about those days in Iraq around Fallujah and Abu Ghraib and the challenges that the coalition forces faced and the reaction of the peoples in Iraq to those events. Ambassador Burns, I think about your time in Jerusalem, coordinating assistance to the Palestinian community in the West Bank and all the challenges inherent in that and the skepticism and distrust of the U.S. interests or intent. Drawing on your respective experiences and what you've seen over your careers, can you share your thoughts about the importance of institutions and talk about the institutional roles in this crisis and that the impact that leaders can have on those organizations how they can continue to make progress and provide hope for a better future in the face of the adversity and distrust in the environment that we face right now. John, Jim Mattis here again. The situation, as you pointed out, demands that leaders bring hope to the people. The people right now are scarred by this. They're scared. I'm reminded that people crave normality. And following the end of World War I and the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, President Harding was elected on a ticket calling for return to normalcy. There's also the medieval fable of basically a traveler on the road to London met fear and plague along the road, supposedly, and plague tells the traveler they're going to London to kill 10,000 people. And the traveler says, can you do that alone, plague? How can you do that? Plague says, oh no, I'm only going to kill 100. Fear will kill the rest. I bring this up because institutions are critical to restoring people's confidence that there's a competent, 
way to deal with this. Institutions are organized for this, both national and international. And yet they've been found wanting to some degree. Some of them have proven good in some countries, yet they're critical to organizing how we deal, whether it be a hurricane or a 9-11 attack or a pandemic. I think governance demands confidence, and that comes from leaders who act as sentinels, and our sentinels were a little bit asleep at the switch, to say the least. People who can anticipate and build in shock absorbers through institutions, and then they can improvise to react to what some people call the black swans, which means something that comes that hasn't been seen previously, or the perfect storms, the confluence of factors that very, very rare. In fact, this pandemic is neither of those. And so I agree with Ambassador Burns. We did an objective 9-11 commission, a nonpartisan commission to determine how we could have had legislation, money, organization, and they fell short. We can do this. Our institutions are strained somewhat by the current elected leader, certainly also by over 10 years of crazy funding through something called sequestration. But the institutions are still there. They're still vibrant. They have good people. With a good review, we can be better prepared. The point is we'll never get it 100% right, and we don't want to get to the point where people are outraged if something not 100% right. But we also cannot get it 100% wrong. These institutions are like a garden, I think. I was thinking as you were talking there, John, The gardens need tending. They need to be weeded. They need to be watered. They need to be fertilized. They need to be audited in a nonpartisan, problem-solving way, looking at what worked in Taiwan and Germany. But it's absolutely critical that we must be able to have institutions that can work across multiple time horizons. This is something that every CEO is going to have to deal with, every governor. The risk analysis is going to have to be up front in these institutions in the future. And they're going to have to accept these things will happen. We can move forward on this. The institutions give us a shock absorber if they're led in the right way. John, this is Nick. You asked about an example from the past that might be instructive for us to learn from. One of them that I would cite is Katrina and the failure of our government, both federal and state in Louisiana, to anticipate, prepare, and defend the citizens of New Orleans and of Louisiana. I happened to be Undersecretary of State at the time working for a really great Secretary of State who was a close friend of Jim Madison myself, and that's Condoleezza Rice. And I remember we were shocked when our phones started ringing that year, and it was foreign governments asking if they could help us because we appeared so destitute and unable to help ourselves. When governments fail, And I think that's what we've just witnessed here in the last couple of months in the United States. The government has to learn. It has to adapt. It has to admit shortcomings and mistakes and then move forward and do a better job. One of the best phrases that I've heard is, in a situation like this, the government needs to build back better. Build back better. That's the phrase of Mitch Landrieu, someone I admire a lot, uh, former mayor of New Orleans. When he came in as mayor after Katrina, He said, we didn't want to rebuild New Orleans exactly the way it was the day before the storm. We knew we had to build it back better and stronger and more resilient for the future. 
that's a way for us to think about what we Americans need to do. And it's got to be nonpartisan. It has to be red states working with blue states, putting aside the partisan battle. This is so much more important than partisan battles in Washington. To me, and this is kind of outside of my issue expertise, it's more domestic policy. We've seen the weakness of our social safety net in America compared to the support that European governments and Asian governments are giving their people. We have a weak social safety net. We see that the poor and even the middle class are having a really tough time just surviving this crisis because our government support from both parties is just not good enough. We see the absence of health insurance in America tied to jobs. It probably should be tied to the individual. For me, the big immediate lesson is we need stronger government at local level, state level, federal level. We need to commit to our citizens to protect them better with a stronger social safety net. And we can do that. We can build a better America out of this crisis. That may be one of the hopeful silver linings that we can think about, but we're all going to have to pull on the same oar as Republicans, Democrats, independents, and not let partisanship divide us. That's a great commentary. I'm going to pivot a little bit here and supplement a question that I had with some questions that have come in online, which is, at some level, you've each said in some form and demonstrated in your own lives over the years that leadership is built upon a foundation of values and a genuine concern for the well-being of others. And we've heard those concepts in your responses today. We find ourselves in the U.S. in a bitterly divided political climate in the middle of a presidential election cycle. And we know the impact and influence that nationalistic themes can have on voters and the use of nationalism to sway voters' opinion. Likewise, we've seen the rise of nationalism in other countries, especially China and so forth. Given this backdrop, how do you feel, do you think it's even possible for the U.S. people to come together, and likewise, perhaps in China, and rally behind a common leader and a common purpose at this point? Or do you think we are somewhat in a perfect storm of events here where it's going to be much more difficult or challenging or potentially delayed as a result? John, Jim Mattis here again. We get graded, societies get graded by their ability to have the right leaders when they're needed. We have to recognize that with notable exceptions, our national level political class appears woeful right now when it comes to pulling it together, all segments of the American people. The one area I'd be cautious on that my good friend Nick just brought up In legal circles, they say bad cases make bad law or something. This is a very bad virus, and we're going to have to be able to deal with it. But I think improvements in our structures and our institutions, we want to be careful coming out of a crisis. Governments that have been granted more power seldom cede that power back. I think we want to be a little careful there and recognize, too, that maybe the good state governors are showing what should be decentralized in a country as large as ours. So it is a challenge when you take good people and match them against bad processes. The bad processes win nine out of ten times in my background in between gerrymandered voting districts that are sending more and more people to Congress on the left and the right who don't want to compromise. You see a government going into a perpetual election cycle, which is elections are part of divide the body politic. I mean, that's a good part of democracy. That's healthy. 
But governance, when the election is over, takes unity. You've got electioneering and division that's going on nonstop to raise money for the next election in two years or four years or six years. And you don't have the unity that comes when it used to be that people rolled up their sleeves and had to work on compromise to get anything done. So where do we look if the political leaders, the process has given us, can't pull the country together? I studied Finland and how Mannheim did this twice in his lifetime, pulled Finland back together. I've studied South Africa and what Mandela did to take a racial hatred that was embedded in the society and bring South Africa through that. I just don't see that right now in our political leaders. I've lived on many campuses. I like campuses, but I don't think that kind of leadership in academia will work. Our religious leaders are unlikely right now for a number of reasons. Military leaders, our country's not ready for that sort of thing. Out of a process of elimination, I think we're going to have to see business leaders taking a wider view of what they are responsible for, what they can do, what examples they can set, what collaborations they can put in place. Big companies with factories in 15 different states and all are going to have to do with 15 different governor's rules. In some cases, I think by the business people putting together what recovery looks like, responsible recovery, cautious recovery, protective recovery that doesn't put health in a second place, but balances health and economic health together. I think we're going to need more business leader examples of leadership. One of the reasons I joined the Cohen Group was because the way they connect with business and how businesses can bring strength. And it's going to have to be beyond, let's just say, some of the portfolios that we had for business leaders in the past, I think. Let me see what Nick has to say here. Well, Jim and I are both students of history, and we both love history. And so two quick examples from our recent past that might shine a light forward. 9-11, a dark, dark day. And yet within days, there were flags flying all around the country. I remember I came home from Brussels, from NATO, to Washington for meetings and was just so heartened by the fact that the country pulled together under George W. Bush's leadership flags flying from nearly every home. It was a great redeeming moment that we could put aside our differences then and come together. I think 2008, in September, October, November 2008, Senator McCain, Senator Obama, they didn't fight each other during the campaign on the need for us to pull together on the Great Recession. That you remember, they went to meetings together with President Bush and the economic leadership in the Congress. So we can do this. Those are two examples of our recent past. On the issue of government and how strong government should be in the role of business, Jim and I will have to have a longer conversation. I look forward to that, Jim. We may disagree on parts of this. We may not. I would give you the historical example of FDR, March, April, May, 1933. That was the last time we faced anything like the recession, depression that we may be heading for. Of course, business was important, but asserting the unique power of the federal government made the difference between 1933 and 1937 when we began to come out of the 38, the Great Depression. And of course, in this crisis that we're experiencing right now, the states have a unique role to play, our governors and state legislatures, 
they're responsible for public health, not the federal government. But I do think that, if I can say this, the most significant mistake that the president has made, President Trump, is not recognizing that even at a time when the states have to act first on public health, the federal government's power to help them, to lead, to integrate, to set a course for the 50 states that everybody can get behind, that's a unique power that can make a difference. President Trump's inability or just disinclination to think of using the federal government in that way, I think has hurt us and really set us back. I think the federal government is probably the key actor here if we can kick it into gear in the months ahead. Thank you both. I'm going to take a question or two from our audience. One relates to globalization in general. As you both know, there's been significant commentary over whether globalism is going to at least continue in its current form and whether or not globalism is actually a good thing. That if to be believed that somebody could eat a bat or something or a pangolin in China and then we find ourselves in this situation. What do you see as the future of globalism coming out of this? And maybe a derivative question of that is, is there even a nationalist solution to these challenges or does it have to be a global solution given the nature of the pandemic and the interconnectedness of our economies? John, I think one point about globalism is that globalism is a reality. It's not just a policy. There are policies that will have to adapt to this. We've done this in the past. We've had national security stockpiles of certain materials or certain raw materials, or we have stockpiled in the past personal protective equipment and this sort of thing so that we could take in stride if a supply chain is tied to one country alone, especially one, say, Russia that uses energy as a weapon or China that has used its market dominance in some areas as a weapon against other countries. Certainly, our policies have to adapt to what is being revealed here. Again, globalism is also being audited. I think, too, there are other aspects to this that we want to be very careful about trying to wall off. I think that what we have to do is adapt our values and our pragmatic steps to protect our countries and band together with like-minded nations. NATO comes to mind again for the reasons Ambassador Nick already mentioned. All democracies together as we look out for one another because we are all in this together. And as the prime minister put it in Denmark, one of the countries I think has done well, she said that if we stand still right now, we're going to fall. And if we move forward too fast, we'll fail. I think on globalism, it's the same thing. We can't stand still with where it's at. There have been areas revealed here that haven't worked out. We want to be, I think, very prudent in what we do under the rubric of getting globalism under control. Some of this is simply a reality we're going to have to deal with, and it can be dealt with. Over to you, Nick. Well, as usual, I'm in violent agreement with General Mattis. I agree, John, that globalization is a reality. It's comprised of forces that are integrating people and businesses, and even in the case of pandemics, threats that unite everybody on earth. We're not going to see a major retreat from that because you can't retreat from it, but we're going to see some changes. Supply chains might be closer to home in the future. We might see a return of manufacturing to North America, to the United States, Canada, Mexico, our symbiotic regional economy 
where that makes most sense. Businesses will make many of those decisions, not government. Businesses should make those decisions. Supply chains closer to home. We don't want to be reliant on China for critical minerals, critical resources, or N95 masks. In this regard, the U.S. is going to have to lead on this issue. The president and Congress and the governors and the businesses are going to have to have a national conversation about what we need to produce here versus items that we can procure from elsewhere. This gets back to leadership, leadership at the federal level, making sure that we're acting nationally, of course, but we're also acting internationally. The fact that the U.S. was not represented Last Tuesday at the EU Global Conference, every major country there to try to get together on vaccine research. They all came up with $9 billion, but we didn't even show up. The fact that we took our money away from the WHO in the middle of a crisis. One of the big stories around the world, and just like Jim, I'm teaching a lot of young people right now, and we've been watching the international news. One of the biggest stories, maybe that a lot of Americans aren't aware of, is how the rest of the world thinks that we're failing at leading the world because of the rest of the world still looks to us for leadership. So that's something that we Americans need to be keenly appreciative of and look inside ourselves and provide that global leadership because it's in our interest to do so, but it's also part of what leadership demands. Thank you. If okay with you two, I'll take one more question from our audience and then we'll tie it out with one final question as we're running short on time. This question is, given the politicization of the realities of COVID-19, are there any specific steps that you think can be undertaken to rebuild Americans' trust with the federal government and its agencies? Boy, that goes to the heart of the issue here. It seems to me that the institutions, if Congress restores its role to a co-equal branch of government, can be funded and resourced, can be staffed, and political nominees can be pushed through quickly, competent ones, to maintain the health of those institutions, whether it be the Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Treasury, to maintain the fiscal sovereignty of our nation, the Department of Defense, to maintain the military defenses. In other words, if Congress will step forward instead of talking about being co-equal, but act co-equal, they can present a united front. One thing I found, I was on a book tour across the country here a few months ago, just how much better the American people are than their politics. The Congress, the People's House, the House of Representatives, the Senators, I think could be induced to find solutions because there is nonpartisan pockets on the Hill. As Secretary of Defense, I enjoyed that because both the House and the Senate Armed Service Committees were absolutely nonpartisan. I got support from both parties. I think that Congress can actually create those institutions in the image for which they were designed and make them healthy, commit to the gardening, the tending the garden of the institutions. That to me is the way we'll see this move forward. It will be harder, it will be slowed, and it's sometimes checkmated by the executive branch that it can't really be stopped if Congress takes advantage of their constitutional powers. Over to you, Nick. I agree with everything Jim said. Maybe I could just add one point. I think what we all need, every American in our government, is a little bit of humility right now. 
humility to be able to say, and democracies do this well, there's an openness and transparency that comes with being a democratic society that we need to learn the lessons of what went wrong. That's the most immediate thing. You got to do this on the fly because who knows, we may have a second wave coming, future pandemic. In the military and in the State Department, we have this concept of red teams. We got a policy. We ask a group of really smart people in the same organization. We challenge them, question our policy, question its assumptions, question the strategy, question the tactics, so we can learn as we move forward. One of the things I really admired about Condi Rice as Secretary of the State, she would often say to me and others, let's get a group of people together. Let's meet in my conference room. I want those smart people to challenge what I'm doing. She had the self-confidence to do that as a leader. And you see that good business leaders, good leaders in all parts of our society have the confidence to say, how might I be wrong? What am I missing? General Marshall, one of our great military and civilian figures used to end his staff meetings as Secretary of State and say to his advisors, tell me how I might be wrong. We need to learn those lessons. Democracies can do it. Dictatorships can. I would start there and try to do it in a way that doesn't try to pin the blame on President Trump or any member of Congress, but just have us move forward together as we learn these lessons. John, if I could just bring in one word of support for what Nick just said. I was given a quote recently by Isaac Asimov, and it says, there is a cult of ignorance in the United States nurtured by the false notion that democracy means that my ignorance is just as good as your knowledge. I think that humility point that the ambassador just made is critical. We're going to have to recognize reality. And the reality is we got a lot of recovery to do. We've lost trust with our own people. We've lost trust on the international stage. And because of America's self-correcting mechanisms, we can do this. But a little humility right now, I think, would be a good starting point. Absolutely. Gentlemen, we have about three minutes left, two minutes left. Last question. What good are we seeing? How can we have hope to go forward? People of the U.S. and around the world so much, so desperately need hope right now. Where do you see good and what can we build upon? Thank you, Jim. Maybe I'll just say a few words and we'll give you the final word, which is your due. I've been talking to my students this semester about two things we need to do in government. We need to defend first, obviously, when threats appear. But second, we need to push forward on the hopeful global trend. Where is the hope in this very dark cloud? It's in our hospitals and health clinics. It's with our doctors, nurses, orderlies, custodial staff. I mean, they have been all around the United States, magnificent public servants. They've faced into the storm. I would say we've seen a lot of hope among our Republican and Democratic governors, Larry Hogan in Maryland, Mike DeWine in Ohio, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, three Republicans, the lionized Andrew Cuomo in New York. He's done a magnificent job. Gavin Newsom, who probably deserves the most credit for keeping California in such a relatively better position. We see hope. It's out there in our society. There's even a silver lining. It could have been worse. A worldwide Ebola pandemic would have been much worse. Finally, I'll end on this, again, because of my interests, Jim's interests in history. 
We've also faced more devastating crises in the past, and that should give us some hope that we'll get through this one. Certainly the Civil War was more destructive. Combination of the Great Depression and World War II, that was more daunting in many ways. Our backs were to the wall in early 1942. I think the civil rights crisis of the 1950s and 60s was much more deeply existential, but we came through all of them. And a major positive note to end this conversation on my part is just to see how strong, considerate, resilient, and patriotic Americans have been. All across the country, in red states and in blue states, people trying to help other people obeying the government, the great majority of Americans will get through this. And our task is going to be, can we rebuild and renew the country together? I think that's where leadership should take us. And it's been a real pleasure to be part of this conversation. John, thanks to DLA Piper. What a pleasure to be with the great General Jim Mattis. Thank you, Nick and John. We are going to come through this. We're going to come through it, and we'll look back on who was helpful, who kept their courage, who was honest, who was transparent. That rough audit is going to expose the good, the bad, and the ugly. We can certainly laud the medical staff, the valor of medical personnel around the country. We're also in a connected world now, and that's while globalism has had some rough analysis here. There's also doctors working together across international lines. They're working in real time thanks to the internet, which we didn't always have in past crises. Our institutions are still holding despite the political attacks, lack of funding, lack of pending that we've seen. They need some repair work. One good thing about this audit, we'll know what needs to be fixed very clearly. It will not be hard to figure it out in the aftermath, hindsight being 2020. I would just close by saying no country in the world is set up politically to do a faster and more heartening recovery. Remember, we're trying to build a country here. It's not built yet. Every generation's got to build it. And it's noble work, but it's hard work. We should recognize that what has been exposed here is some of the hard work we have to do. We will continue to build this country. It will be more just, more fair, and a better leader coming out of this. It's just a matter of getting through it using courage. Courage comes from the Latin word core, which is heart. And so I think we all have to keep heart. We have to overlook those who try to split us and focus on those who are pulling us together. Thanks again, John and Ambassador Nick for having me on. It's been a delight. Thank you for listening to DLA Piper's Beyond the Curve podcast. This podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship between the firm and listener. All information, content, and materials discussed are for general informational purposes only. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this information without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Views expressed by guests are their own.